0: Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash PWRadio and also available on iTunes. I'm Mark Rotella Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. Today we have Gabe Havash Fiction Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly filling in for Rose Fox. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. We're here for you and we want to answer your questions so send them to us at Radio at publishersweekly.com or tweet them to at PubWeeklyRadio, that's Pub WKLY Radio on Twitter. Today we'll be talking with Luke Barr, author of Provence 1970, MFK Fisher, Julia Child, James Beard, and The Reinvention of American Taste. Then Poetry Reviews editor Craig Teicher will tell us about the National Book Awards. But first, with Gabe Habesh, we'll be talking about next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list powered by Nielsen Bookscan. So Gabe, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Mark. So I'm just going to take a look at two uh, debuts on the nonfiction list, uh, because I know you have a little bit to tell us about on the fiction list. We have Still Foolin' Them. This is uh, Where I've Been, Where I'm Going, and Where the Hell Are My Keys. This is Billy Crystal's book, debuting at number two. Our review says, Avoiding the Trappings, Excess Schmaltz, Laundry List of Famous Friends, Boozy Party Log of So Many Celebrity Memoirs. Crystal delivers a funny and genuinely moving Chronicle of his life inside and Outside Hollywood And debuting at number 16 is A House in the Sky by Amanda Linhout and Sarah Corbett Uh, This is the Canadian journalist who gives us a well-honed, harrowing account of her 459-day captivity at the hands of Somali Islamists rebels. Uh, This is a book that's been getting quite a bit of attention uh, on radio, on TV, and uh, it's number 16 on our list. So, Gabe, what do you have with us? It seems like we have a couple of surprises on the uh, fiction
1: list. Yeah, um, well, it's actually some established names uh, who are pretty big heavyweights in the literary community mm-hmm. who've been uh, established for quite some time. Uh, this week, we have two uh, names that will be familiar to anybody who's been reading fiction for quite some time. It's uh, Jonathan Leatham's Dissident Gardens debuts at number 22 on the fiction list, mm-hmm. and Alice McDermott's Someone debuts at number 14 on the fiction list. Um, and Dissident Gardens is uh, Lethem's ninth novel, I believe, uh, and Someone is Alice McDermott's seventh. So oh. they've been they've been at it for some time, and they're still they're still doing quite well, it seems.
0: Well, we've been talking about uh, you know the bestseller list for some time, and it's uh, you know it's always nice to see some literary uh, books on the list. But it seems like we've got a couple more uh, coming down the pike.
1: Yeah, what actually, we have this is this a big season, an unusual season? Well, I'm not sure it's unusual because September, as you know, is the the month where at the time that the big publishers bring out the big names, but it seems like there's a pretty big uh, confluence of, you know, large writers that just have big followings, you know, like in addition to Lethem and McDermott that had books out this month, we're also, uh, this week, saw the publication of Thomas Pynchon's new book, which is obviously a huge event because he doesn't write ever, and when he does, it's a big sensation, you know, his first book was 50 years ago, and I think he's only done six or seven right. in that time. Uh, so that should be hitting the bestseller list, you know, next week because, wow. you know, everything he does is big, big. So yeah, and then we also have um Childhood of Jesus from J.M. Coetzee, which is, you know, he's a he's a Pulitzer winner and he's a Nobel winner and um, you know, everything he does is also acclaimed from everybody and uh, I've actually read the book and it's outstanding. It's a mm-hmm. uh, fantastic book. Um and that book actually is really good because it's um, really allegorical. It's not uh, overly complicated. Anybody who's read his fiction knows that he does a lot of deceptively simple prose and dialogue, and this book is no different. It's uh, about a man who's escorting a boy who's not his son but is mistaken by strangers to be a son in this sort of timeless and placeless uh, country, you're not sure when it's taking place or what the country is, and he's trying to get the boy back to his mother. And the boy doesn't remember what his mother looks like or her name, and the man has never met the woman. He's just trying to do his duty, and so it's this. It's almost like The Road by Corinth McCarthy, mm. um, but it's it's fantastic. Um, you know, it has the same uh, the same quality of writing that you come to expect from him. Um, And then also September, earlier this month, there were a few other books that um, came out that, you know, from authors that also have a big fan base, like uh, Daniel Woodrell's The Maid's Maid's Version. Obviously, his biggest book is Winter's Bone. That was uh, made into the movie that was so successful. And um, this one is a pretty slim book, but its centerpiece is the 1929 Arbor Dance Hall Explosion, which killed 42 people, and he sort of uses that as a centerpiece to... um, you know set off the rest of the events of the book um, and then also earlier this month there was the final book in the uh, Mad Adam trilogy mm-hmm. by Margaret Atwood which you know she has she has millions and millions of fans and uh, the, right. the trilogy started with Oryx and Crake and then the second book was the year of the flood and mm-hmm. that was a few years ago so fans have been eagerly anticipating the third book and you know we gave it a starred review and said it's you know the culmination of just this outstanding outstanding trilogy so um you know if you haven't read the first two books you know you should get on it and then get on the <laughs> third one <laughs> get some reading to do good advice gabe thank you um and then yeah that, so that's this is all september which is why it's mm-hmm. so crazy that there's so many books from these big names coming out and you know later this month there's jump lahiri's second novel which is the lowland her first novel was the namesake and I, I bet we'll be seeing that on the best yeah list I'm sure well. I think that yeah. has that has a three hundred fifty thousand copy first printing so um, wow. that'll be that'll be at the top of the list I'm sure and um you know also earlier this month we had uh Paul Harding's uh, second novel Enon and you know obviously his first one Tinkers, won the Pulitzer Prize it came out of nowhere it surprised a lot of people a few years ago it came from Bellevue literary press, a tiny publisher and uh, it was sort of this out of left field winner and um his new book is from random house and uh-huh. uh it actually is in the same setting and follows the same family as uh his award-winning debut tinker so um you know fans of that first book are gonna be eagerly anticipating reading this one as well
0: great well this sounds wonderful thank you for this round up and we'll see how uh, we'll see how the uh, pension does uh next week so thanks so much for coming on the show gabe thanks mark I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Luke Barr will tell us how events in 1970 Provence change American food culture forever. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Luke Barr on the line. He's the author of Provence 1970, MFK Fisher, Julia Child, James Beard, and the Reinvention of American Taste. Luke, thanks so much for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: So tell us, the title of the book is Provence 1970. What is the significance of Provence in 1970? And you can start with either part of that
2: well you know um the the significance of of 1970 um you know is that this was a moment in, in in American food history when a lot was changing um, throughout the 60s especially you know there was so much going on culturally in America and that affected food too so this is in 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 the way I see this history this is a kind of a crucial turning point in that in the story of food in America and it just so happens that it takes place in France my book that my book takes place in France when all of the sort of seminal figures of the American food uh Um, establishment happened to find themselves there coincidentally more or less in November and December of 1970 so they were eating uh, they were cooking, they were drinking they were hanging out, they were going to visit museums and sort of doing stuff together all the while discussing what was the, the, the future of food, what was changing in cooking and sort of rethinking each in their own way their their relationship with France, Mm -hmm. because France had had sort of inspired them initially. I mean, just just to go back into the history a little bit, all of these, all of the seminal American food writers, cookbook authors, and so forth, starting with Julia Child, starting with MFK Fisher, James Beard, all of them, they had all had this sort of seminal experience of... Coming to Europe, um, it, you know, when they were relatively young, and this would have happened back in, in the case of M. F. K. Fisher, in the late 1920s, mm-hmm. um, in the case of others in the 40s and 50s. So, in, in sort of early mid-century, they they came to France and they discovered, wow, you know, just you know, here's this bread, here's this butter, here is a you know a sole meuniere, here's a, all kinds of food that you could not have that it didn't. Didn't exist that they couldn't they would never tasted before so they were sort of thrilled and inspired by that experience and they brought that food back to America so that's the backstory of, of of my book really
0: so what were Americans eating I mean we're coming out of uh, of a time in the 1950s with lots of processed foods you know for for
2: convenience right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the history of the. Uh, uh, listen, by the way, I do not pretend to be a true expert. I've, I've, you know, talked to some real experts and read their books. I'm not a real expert in, in culinary history, but um, <laughs> it is true that the food the food Americans ate in general in the 1950s was, you know, just. Uh, bad, you know. They all there was a huge emphasis on processed food, on convenience food. The TV dinner was invented. There was all this kind of stuff going on post-war, and then along comes uh, Julia Child, 1962, with um, uh, you know mastering the art of French cooking. She goes on television; it's a huge success. So in the 60s, it's already changing quite a lot. So. Um, people are starting to be interested people are traveling more you know they're the the going to Europe is much, much more accessible post-war. So in the 60s, people are traveling. There are all these wonderful French restaurants opening up in America. Julia is on television talking about French food. So there's a huge awakening that's happening. And then, but simultaneously, the 60s is happening, and sort of, you know, bohemianism is happening, and rock and roll, and all of that. So by the time my book takes place in 1970, there's already sort of a... A pushback or, you know, there's this feeling of this French, fancy, eau cuisine cooking, which, mm-hmm. you know, had been revered for so long. Now, suddenly, people are thinking, wait a sec, you know, um, why, why do we have to, you know, why do we have to cook like that? Maybe we can do different things. And Julia Child herself is thinking these things. And MFK Fisher and all of them are thinking about this stuff. Um, you know, there was previously a whole culture of you know, chefs were trained, you went to school to learn how to be a chef, you trained for years in, in, a, in a French restaurant, and then suddenly, you know, um, Alice Waters in 1970 is in Berkeley, California, and she's, she, never went, she never went to cooking school, and she's thinking, I'm going to pick these vegetables in my garden and open a restaurant with some friends, and so all of that kind of stuff is happening around this moment.
0: Wow well in at this point I we should probably talk about MFK Fisher and uh she is in fact your great aunt. Uh, what what do you remember about her?
2: Well yeah um NF was my great aunt. She uh, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay area. Um and She lived up in Sonoma County in Glen Ellen, and my grandmother, her sister, also lived up in Sonoma County in Jenner, which is on the coast a little bit further along. So, and my my parents were very, very young when they had me. They were, you know, like 21 years old or whatever, 1968 I was born. So, in the 70s, we would often drive up to Sonoma to visit my grandmother for the weekend, and along the way, we would stop off at my great aunts and had lunch and so forth. So I, I grew up sort of visiting her uh and seeing her on our many trips up to Sonoma. Um and I have very fond memories of of that house. Um, in fact I, I went back not about a few years ago I should say. Right. I was doing a story. I'm an editor of travel leisure. I write for the magazine quite a bit too and I was doing a story about Sonoma and I went back to her house in Glen Ellen which is on the Bouverie Nature Preserve um, now it's part of it. she she the house is now part of a nature preserve really beautiful part of Sonoma and it's this fabulous old you know a, a fabulous house that she built in 1970 Oh wow! and it was amazing to go back and sort of it's always amazing to go back to a place that you hadn't been in a long time so right. that, was that, that was that experience um, but yeah I, should, I guess I should also just briefly explain how the book came about which is that I was writing a story for Travel and Leisure about en Provence a, a town in Provence that, that my great aunt loved and wrote about um, and I went there sort of a little bit writing a travel story but also wanting to explore um, what she'd seen and look at it through her eyes a little bit And as I was writing a story and researching it, I, I sort of stumbled upon this fact, which was that M.F. and Julia Child and James Beard and Richard Olney and Judith Jones and all these kind of iconic figures in the American food world had found themselves there together. And I thought, wow, this is like, I mean, honestly, I thought this sounds like one of those kind of Vanity Fair stories With great vintage Photographs And so forth But then In talking to my agent We decided That this could be a book And so then I started researching And that's how The book came about
0: Well I Tell us about your experience with her books or, or her writings I mean she was a, uh, uh, an avid letter writer and uh, journal keeper I believe
2: I was extremely fortunate I must say in in my in, in many ways I've, I've been fortunate <laughs> with this book it's just in a, a I'm not saying it's easy to write writing is always very hard but it was, uh, the, 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 I, I, was I was lucky in many respects mm-hmm. first of all I, I you know here I, I'm writing a book about this this very short period of time I mean, it's, it's really only a, a few weeks that they're all there together. You know, I have I'm, I'm writing a story about five a bunch of characters and they're and um, but still, it's a very limited period of time. So I'm desperate as I'm writing this for actual real information. What did they eat? Um, mm. What did they, exactly did they do? Mm. And you know, I the, um, what, as it happens, my great aunt MF um, was having a, a long distance love affair with a magazine editor in New York City, Arnold Gingrich. She was the founding editor of Esquire. Now, this relationship, uh, a lot of time I don't really know that They were, you know, she was. Uh, they it was an, it was a long term thing. They they wrote they wrote each other letters every single day. It was mostly, I think, a, a, you know, sort of an epistolary relationship. But more than anything else, it was it was written down. But anyway, as so as a result of that, I have d- all these daily letters that she was writing. So therefore, I know. Well, um, you know, she was writing a letter. Well, today I. James Beard and I you know went down to the Picasso Museum whatever it is or you know tomorrow we're going to eat the dinner at the child's house all this kind of all this information is, is in the letter so that was um, a hugely uh, fortunate um, uh, fact uh, that's, from, pretty, that's pretty impressive birth. and then I also then she also later uh, you know that same um, December went off on her own to Arles and then to Avignon um, before Christmas and she was keeping a journal Mm-hmm. And I found that journal um, when I was sort of digging through my cousin 's piles and piles and boxes of stuff so i had, I also found this journal, which is another great uh, fortunate um, event that you know, I could never have predicted that I was going to find that so mm-hmm. you know that was uh, those are, those are sort of strokes of luck but and more generally speaking, this generation of people was just, they were just fabulous writers of letters i mean really stylish, funny. Um, gossipy letters, um, and you know this was obviously in. in uh, uh, we don't do that anymore. Uh, you know, I, at least I don't write letters like that. So it's kind of amazing to to do when you when I was researching this book to be going through not just my great aunt's um, letters, but Julia Childs and James Beard's. All of them, they were really wonderful, um, wonderful letters.
0: And how did you come into contact with these letters? How did you find them? Where were they?
2: Well different places um, the schlesinger library at, at harvard uh, is has a really great collection of uh, Letters of American women in different fields, and they 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 have a really great culinary collection. Mm-hmm. So um, all the way back in the seventies, they were they had they were collecting letters. They had all of Julia Child's correspondence, and they have all of my great aunt M.K. Fisher's correspondence, and they have all Simone Beck's correspondence. Beck's there's not much of Simone Beck there, but um, so that was a key source, mm-hmm. the the library. Um, then as I as I as I said, my, my cousin has a sort of a storage locker out in the Bay Area where she has all all kinds of further boxes of stuff and documents and things that that harbor didn't want. You know they, it's not like they had every single scrap of paper there they had they They took what I guess the the key correspondence was. Um, so there was a whole secondary level of stuff that I found in in my sort of family um collection, let's say. Um, and then the James Beard papers were a little bit trickier to track down. You know that he he had, when he died, donated his all of his materials to. I'm not going to remember the University of Washington, maybe out on the West Coast. I might not have the name right. Um, but any, in any event, they went out to Washington, and then they. They never got processed, so the, I guess they didn't have the money to really put this collection to into to the public. So it just sort of stayed in storage for years and years, and eventually um, they came back to NYU, and so now the the failed library at NYU has an um, uh, you know they have all of the James Beard papers. Wow, yeah, so that was and that was all happening as I was doing my research, so it was you know they were really helpful and and wonderful about letting me get in there and look through these papers, which they hadn't they were in the process of organizing and alphabetizing and processing and so forth, but they hadn 't done that yet, so I was sort of allowed to go in um, and and go through them myself, so that was uh, also really um, fortunate.
0: Well, you've obviously tapped into this really rich and, and timely subject, and I'm, I'm really intrigued to learn that this uh, confluence of food writers and, and cooks in Provence in 1970 was only you know, a couple of weeks long. Did they know each other before? Had they met each other before? I I know they, I'm sure they knew of each other. How did this uh, union come together? Was it planned? Was it accidental?
2: Yeah, it was, it was, it was not really planned. Um, And the answer is there, there's, there's varying, uh, some of them had never met. Some of them had met briefly, Mm -hmm. sort of like that. That's how it was. Um, The... The, the star of this firmament is Julia Child. Yeah, you know, she was she was sort of the she's on the cover of Time magazine. You know, she was really um, a significant figure, and everyone sort of orbited around her a little bit. I think. Um, so she, so she, and she, and and her husband Paul Child had, had built this house um, on the property that belonged to her her writing partner. Simone Beck. So this is in, in, and that was in the mid 60s. So, you know, not, it wasn't that long into the past. They'd only been, they built this house in the mid 60s. They were coming there with their vacation house. And they would tell everyone, oh, we're going, you know, we're going to be in Provence over Christmas. You know, please come, everyone come. and," And so the other thing was, Child and Beck had just finished volume two of Mastering the Art of French Cooking. Uh, which had come out um, in November you know, just just right before my book takes place it right. was a huge success and they'd been on book tour and they were all exhausted and so um, Julia said to Judith Jones who was her editor at Cavho oh, you know you and your husband should come too we're going to be in Provence and um, Beard had been had been sort of Coming and visiting the child for a few years already, and he was he was gonna he sort of enrolled himself in a diet clinic nearby. He was trying to lose weight. He was enormously overweight at this point, and wanted to lose some weight. And so there was this very famous diet doctor um, right nearby, right where the child had their house. So he signed up there for the entire month of December. Um, and then, meanwhile, yeah. So there was just correspondence back and forth where Julia said to MF, "Oh, you know, we're going to be there during uh, over the holidays." And MF and my grandmother were already planning their trip. For they were there, they were going to be in France for a few months, so they were already planning to go to Paris, and then they were going to go on a riverboat cruise and so forth. So they had their whole you know trip planned out, and then they they decided to sort of coincide with. The Child and Beard and everyone else. So it was a little bit of a coincidence, really. Um, and they knew each other kind of professionally, and they'd met a few times. Um, and no one, I think, had met Olney yet. I know that Olney and M.F. met for the first time, and Olney and Beard met for the first time in December 1970. I think Child and Olney had met briefly the previous summer. So anyway, there there's, there, they, there were some overlaps you know, beforehand and so forth. But um, I think I answered your question.
0: Oh, no, definitely. And, if, <laughs> and just on, on a on a closing note, if there is one memory of of your great aunt MFK Fisher, what would that be?
2: Um it's funny i i the thing I most remember and you have to remember i, I knew her when I was a kid basically um uh, because when we when I was twelve um in nineteen eighty 1980 or nineteen eighty one or something family moved to europe so and i and i didn't see her for that period for a long period so um what I remember really is how she talked to me as a let's say ten year old Mm-hmm. kid um and the look in her eye and it was interesting because you know um it makes now that i have a, i have a nine-year-old daughter <laughs> you know how how you deal with children is interesting as an adult and, and looking back on it i really think i remember that she looked at me in this very intense and um sort of not judgmental but she took me seriously enough that she didn't just and I don't mean just me I mean kids in general you know she talked to you like a real person and she 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 had this kind of piercing um look and and she had and she conducted a kind of adult conversation even though i was a kid so what i most remember is that is those conversations with her and the look in her eye and this is this would be over lunch um you know in Sonoma is mm. County in the late 70s. But so that's, that's sort of my um, memory, strongest memory of her.
0: Oh, it sounds wonderful. Well, we've been talking with Luke Barr. You can pre-order his book, Provence 1970, right now, and it'll be in stores in October. Luke, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: I'm Mark Rotella. Rose Fox is on vacation this week, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Reviews editor Craig Teicher reports on the National Book Awards, so stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from one of the editors at Publishers Weekly, and today Poetry Reviews editor Craig Teicher, uh, who's a judge on the National Book Awards uh, Poetry Panel, is here to talk to us about that. Thanks, Craig. Sure tell us about the long list which was announced earlier this week yeah this is the first year the
3: national book awards has ever done a long list which is a a list of 10 books from which the judges will then call the five finalists from which the winner will be chosen but uh when they told the judging panels about this this year they they basically said we want to honor and or draw attention to a, a larger number of books than we usually do you know I think one of the things that always happens with finalists for a book prize is, you know, it's always an opportunity for uh, five books to get a bunch more attention than they normally would, even if they don't win the prize. So they're trying to sort of expand that circle of attention Mm. to more books. And so tell us about some of the titles that are on the list. Let's see. Uh, So we have uh, Frank Bedard, who... He's a very famous poet and has been a National Book Award finalist at least once, maybe twice before. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have um, a total newcomer named Matt Rasmussen, uh, who, this is his first book, he won a prize. uh, So that's exciting. Um, We have a book uh, by Roger Bonaire Agard, who uh, has really made his name on the performance side of poetry. And so it's kind of, and, and this book is kind of a crossover between poetry that's really written for performance and poetry that's written uh, to be read on the page, so that's an exciting thing. Um, I think it ended up being uh, a sort of an unusually various list, maybe because we knew we had a little more room to make it, um, and, you know, I have no idea
0: what, what will end up happening when we has to cut it down so how did that come about so you're given the tax a uh, task of uh broadening a list why why do that right now you know i think that it, uh, you know again all i have is is my sense
3: uh you know from from the, the things that the national book foundation has said in general but uh, you know i just think that they see their mission as uh bringing attention to books and mm-hmm. they thought well every year we have this kind of four months where we have some attention from the media so let's add a bunch more books to right the ones that people are going to pay attention to so they also did this thing this year where they collaborated with the Daily Beast and have been releasing one list one long list a day this week right. um so we still have to the the fiction list actually comes out tomorrow so they did the young people's literature monday poetry tuesday today was non-fiction and tomorrow is young pe- is uh
0: fiction tomorrow's fiction that's right so we still don't know no this is true we don't know but we do know poetry we do and it seems like on the list you have some uh, pretty well-known people but then uh, i want to say some newcomers to the list yeah yeah
3: um yeah uh as i was saying you know uh i mean lucy brock broido is also pretty well known right uh and then yeah i mean uh roger bernard and matt rasmussen have not been on these kinds of lists before. Mm. Um,
0: People can go to the National Book Awards uh, or, or site. Or they can come to
3: our own site. Right, exactly. Copy.com. We have it right
0: on there, yes. We do. Yeah. So uh, just moving on a little bit, I mean, talking about poetry, and uh, I guess uh, uh, two weeks ago, uh, great Irish poet Seamus Haney died, and you had mentioned you had come across uh, Something that links poetry, Seamus Haney, and perhaps uh, something digital mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So yeah what do you so
3: got? yeah, Heaney died uh, two weeks ago, it'll be two weeks this coming Friday, uh, you know he had won the Nobel Prize in ninety five he was uh, i mean probably sort of arguably the most famous poet in, in the world or the most well w- well read mm-hmm. um, anyway his his books actually sold like books. Um, Instead of uh, what most poetry books sell like, uh, but he was he, he was very he was very famous, um, and you know so in England he was published in the UK. Uh, in general, he was published by Faber and Faber, which is kind of like FSG, but they're older and uh, uh, I think they sort of have a broader spectrum mm-hmm. of of what they do, even than FSG does. And I think FSG still distributes Faber and Faber. They have. There's a there's a Faber and Faber imprint mm. that is an FSG imprint in the U.S. Um, and and they they tend to swap authors a lot. Right. Um, but I don't think I mean Faber books are not actually distributed here except for that imprint, and it's oh. not often the same books. It's right. The Faber imprint here is a lot of music books. Right. For some reason. Um. Anyway, and and you know in in the UK they have a very strong culture around poetry. I mean there's a lot of poetry on the BBC. There's always been. There's a lot of poetry readings, people actually read it anyway. So Faber has a little line of books that they call Faber Voices. Well they're they're ebooks. And I was just looking for Seamus Haney things in the iBook store, uh, and came across this Faber Voices ebook, which is um it's a fixed format ebook, meaning the pages don't reflow, so it it's probably built on top of a PDF, uh or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um and then there's a little play button at the top of the page and you push play and suddenly Haney is reading the poem and then it subtly highlights the line he's reading as you're going down and he was a marvelous reader Wow Um, and you know I I think a lot of times some of these gimmicky ebook concepts are just that where you're kind of like hey my book has a movie in it or hey my book beeps Um, but I actually think this is a really good blending of a kind of a print concept and a digital concept where you can actually have a richer experience you know the book doesn't play the the voice unless you click play and so you can just read it sure you can have both and it was a nice way of feeling a little bit connected to Heaney, who was important to me as he was to many other readers of poetry
0: yeah and i guess there is something i mean it's almost like going to your own uh personal uh poetry reading right there where it is especially with the better readers uh to to hear their voices and i remember um listening to uh Recordings of William Faulkner reading uh, some of his work, and I, I mean, the recording was made obviously, you know, in, in the uh, uh, it was actually the, probably the 1940s, and and I was surprised at how uh, high and pinched his his voice was, but but it. I think it added quite a bit to the uh, right. to the text.
3: I think everybody in the forties had a high voice. It, this is it true. Yeah,
0: it was <laughs> that's how that's how they talked back then. Yeah, yeah, it's sure, just. sure, yeah. So, oh, that sounds wonderful. Well, Craig, thank you so much for coming on and talking with us. Yeah, and uh, uh, we'll look forward to uh, see what happens with the National Book Award very soon. Yes, thanks so much. Yeah. And that's it for today's show. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. If you want to hear your question on the air next week, just email it to PWRadio at PublishersWeekly.com or tweet it at PubWeeklyRadio. That's PubWKLYRadio on Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. You can find this in every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at PublishersWeekly.com slash PWRadio. Also on iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. Check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show.